the passage is Mark 14 and verses 53 to 65. Thanks, Helen. And if you've got a church Bible, that's uh, page 719. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but, did, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple, and in three days will build another, not made by man. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Well, it's been an absolute delight and a joy uh, for me to be with you. I hope that something of the reverse has been true as well thus far and uh, that I've been an encouragement uh, to you and can continue to be so uh, this morning and in the, the Q&A session at the, the lunch later on. Um, I spent quite a lot of yesterday talking about God, uh, so it's only appropriate that I turn to the central uh, issue as far as Christianity is concerned and talk about Jesus, the real Jesus. Does Christianity really understand the real Jesus? You may have uh, heard of Philip Pullman's uh, latest book, The Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ, a um, completely unevidenced and imaginative retelling of the gospel story. Uh, a reviewer in The Guardian said that the gospel, according to Pullman, will prompt many readers, uh, readers to turn once more to consider whether or not they should accept the apparently bizarre testimony of the early Christian witnesses. Testimony which they repeatedly insisted was not simply a story like Pullman's book, but was based on factual experience. The New Testament scholar R.T. France once noted that at the level of their literary and historical character, he thought we had good reason to trust the Gospels, to take them seriously. But he said, beyond that point of the historical evidence, the decision as to how far a scholar is willing to accept the record they offer is likely to be influenced much more by his openness to a supernatural worldview than by strictly historical 
considerations. Let me put it for you like this. This is the Nicene Creed, uh, a summary of Christian beliefs from the 4th century. And you can see it starts off with, we believe in one God, and then moves on to talking about, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. Now, if you don't believe the opening statement of the creed, you will find it quite hard to believe the next statement of the creed. If you don't believe that there is a God, it would take an awful lot of evidence, historically speaking, to convince you that Jesus was the son of a God that you don't believe exists. However, if you believe in some kind of a God, in theism, as a philosopher would put it, in a general sense, I was defending yesterday evening, and then you come to the historical records about Jesus, well, that puts a whole new light on it. And you might find that evidence much more convincing in that framework than you would within an atheistic framework. Alvin Plantinga is probably the world's uh, most well-known, most respected philosopher of religion. He is an American of Dutch extract, has a fantastic beard, and uh, is a Christian. And he says that there are at least a couple of dozen or so good arguments for God. Now, I don't have time to go into any of that this morning, you may be relieved to hear, but I can plug my book, because the last chapter of my book that's on the little bookstall by the door downstairs, A Skeptic's Guide to Atheism, reviews some of those arguments for God and interacts with the uh, critique made of them by the new atheists and shows why that critique does not cut the philosophical mustard. More recently, I've been writing a book called Understanding Jesus, which will come out next year with Paternoster Press, looking at a, a cumulative case, the kind of case that you put together in a court of law, for understanding Jesus in the Christian way, saying Christians really do understand the real Jesus. Now, a cumulative case is one where you have a bunch of arguments, each argument providing some evidence towards the conclusion, without necessarily providing enough evidence on its own. It's the the, the conglomeration of all of these bits of evidence pointing in the same direction that really clinches the case. So, I would put in the the balance pan, as you like, to increase the the probability of the Christian understanding of Jesus. Things like Jesus' self-image, Jesus' miracles, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, Jesus' fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy, and religious experience involving Jesus from the time that he came to today. And I think the combination of these five reasons for understanding Jesus in the Christian way form a powerful, cumulative case. I'm only going to have time to look at one of those this morning with you, and I'm going to look at the issue of Jesus' self-identity, his self-understanding. In the New Testament, we find, as uh, is put in this fantastic book uh, with the provocative title of Putting Jesus in His Place, The authors show that in the New Testament, Jesus is described as sharing God's honours, God's attributes, God's names, God's deeds, and God's seat of judgment that we had in that passage that was read for us. It helpfully forms the the acronym HANDS to help you remember those aspects. 
And given that kind of data, C.S. Lewis very famously said that a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be, as many people would like to describe him, a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who thinks he's a poached egg or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher, full stop. He's not left that open to us. Well, Lewis made this argument for understanding Jesus the Christian way very well known, But he wasn't the first to make it. For example, Professor John Duncan, back in the 18th, 19th century, said Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud or he was himself deluded and self-deceived or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. It is inexorable. But of course, all of that assumes that Jesus really did understand himself that way, that the claims made about his self-understanding in the New Testament are accurate. And people like uh, the Da Vinci Code author Dan Brown would have us believe otherwise. This is a a quote from the Da Vinci Code in which uh, one character, Professor Teabing here, says that Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless. Not the Son of God, asks another character. Right, T-Bing said. Jesus, his establishment as the Son of God, was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea, a church council that met in 325 AD. So Dan Brown would have you believe that in 325 AD, someone thought up a bright idea, put it to a vote, and we all, all questioned the council, kind of said, oh yeah, that's a bright idea, let's say that Jesus was the Son of God. And before that, Christians hadn't really kind of thought of this. Well, I think you can refute that conclusively, both through indirect evidence, uh, the beliefs of the early Christians, and also direct evidence when we look at Jesus' explicit and implicit claims to deity. Let's look at some indirect archaeological evidence for a start. This is a fascinating wall painting depicting the incident of the healing of the paralytic from Mark's Gospel that I put up there as well. This is the earliest known pictorial representation of Jesus and it dates from about 235 AD, so 100 years before the Council of Nicaea. And the interesting thing about this story, and you can see this is Jesus here pointing to the paralytic on his bed and there here is the paralytic having been healed by Jesus take up your bed and walk. And of course, in that passage, Jesus not only heals him, he heals him to show that he has the authority to forgive his sins. And those standing there say, who does this fellow think he is? To act like that, that's that's blasphemy. He's putting himself in the shoes of God. Who can forgive sins but God alone? If you sin against me, I might forgive you. If you sin against Kevin, you'd think it was very odd of me to come up to you and say, don't worry, I forgive you. 
The only person who could rightfully do that would be God. This is a photo uh, looking downwards upon the mosaics of a Christian prayer hall, a Christian meeting room, uh, uncovered near Medigo and dated to about 230 AD. You'll notice there's a fish symbol in this mosaic over here. And of course that was an early Christian symbol. The word fish in Greek was an acrostic which uh, had a combination of letters which spelled out the phrase Jesus Christ, Son of God, Saviour. 230 AD. But even more interestingly is this inscription here. And here's a close-up of it. And the inscription reads, The God-loving Akeptus has offered the table, the table in the middle here for communion, to the God, Jesus Christ. And you may know this. This is called the uh, Alaxaminos uh, graffiti. Uh, you can just about make out here is a human figure raising his hands, worshipping a donkey-headed figure on a cross. And the inscription in Latin reads, Alaxaminos worships his God. Well, this inscription has been dated rather vaguely, but between the 1st century and the 3rd century AD, certainly before the Council of Nicaea. So just from looking at archaeology, you can see that Christians certainly believed that Jesus was divine long before the Council of Nicaea. Indeed, the oldest Christian sermon, the oldest liturgical prayer, the oldest account of a Christian martyr, the oldest pagan reports of the church, all refer to Jesus being divine within the Christian belief system. And you could say that the trilemma applies just as much to the early Christians as to Jesus. Were they just making it up as a lie? Or were they somehow deceived? Well, that would go back to who deceived them, Jesus, presumably. Or were they telling the truth as they perceived it? Now we come on to some of the more direct evidence. And this incident that we had read out for us about Jesus' trial, where Jesus really puts his foot in it when his life is on the line. If ever there was a time for a bit of uh, theological subtlety and distinction-making and quick-footedness to save your life... This was it. And Jesus ups the ante. The evidence is not going well. They're trying to build the case against him and it's collapsing because the witnesses keep contradicting each other. Maybe they didn't pay them enough. And so the high priest kind of resorts to, well, let's see if we can get him to, you know, kind of uh, commit himself here. And we say, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the Messiah? Well, Jesus ups the ante. He says, I am. Think of the burning bush, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And they all tear their clothes in this uh, traditional sign of, of uh, religious remorse and condemn him as worthy of death. Well, you have to know the background for this passage. The imagery that Jesus is deliberately drawing on comes from a passage in the book of Daniel, in a visionary passage from Daniel 7. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, says Daniel, coming with the clouds of heaven. And this is traditional Jewish imagery for the glory of God, the clouds of heaven. 
He approaches the Ancient of Days, God the Father, led into his presence, given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshipped him. The, New, the Old Testament is very hot on the fact that you're only allowed to worship God. You can't worship a creature, you can't worship another human being, you can't even worship an angel of the Lord, only God, and yet this Son of Man figure is worshipped. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, one that no merely human person could ever have. And Jesus draws on this imagery and applies it to himself and says, I am the Son of Man from Daniel. So it's hardly surprising that there's something of a consensus of scholarship that, as uh, Gary Habermas in the middle there says, from a variety of angles, we learn that Jesus thought of himself as deity. And this gives us a paradox, a conundrum, a puzzle to solve. And I think you can highlight that puzzle like this. There are, you know, you know they're saying, there are two types of people. Well, here's, there are four types of people. We have sages, really wise teachers that we respect, and non-sages, people like you and me. And we have people who do not claim to be divine in the Jewish sense, and we have people who do claim to be divine in the Jewish sense. Well, people who do not claim to be divine and are not recognised as being sages, well, that's most people, that's us. People who do not claim to be divine and yet are recognised as sages, you could maybe count on the fingers of your hands. People like Socrates, Confucius, Moses, Buddha. What about people who do claim to be divine, but that we don't think of as sages, respected teachers? Well, they do exist. There are recognised psychological conditions where people have a divinity complex and so on. And we do our best to look after them in institutions. What about people who do claim to be divine, and yet many people would say should be recognised as a sage? One person, I suggest. That is a profound paradox. What is the best explanation of this puzzle? Well, we only have limited options. Jesus claims divinity, that was true or false. If it was false, he either didn't know that it was false, or he knew it was false. If he didn't know, he was a lunatic. If he did know, he was a liar. If it was true, he is Lord. Lunatic? Liar? If you think those are implausible, it forces you into the Lord category. The more implausible you find That side of the diagram, the more plausible you find the other side. Was Jesus a liar within his culture, a blasphemer, and this would be a big deal culturally, for Jesus to claim he's divine if he knows he isn't, to be a liar and a blasphemer? What would be his plausible motive for doing this? Why would a clever man, he's clearly a clever guy from his dialogues, lie about this at his trial where it secures a death sentence for blasphemy, and he would have known that. It seems out of character with everything else that we can know about him. Why would Jesus, acknowledged as a great moral teacher and a devout Jew, perjure himself 
by blaspheming. A measure of your insanity, says Peter Kreeft, an American philosopher, is the size of the gap between what you think you are and what you really are. Sanity relates self-image to reality. If I come before you and say, OK, guys, I'm a pretty decent sort of chap, you'll probably let me get away with it. If I come to you and I say, you know, I'm the nicest person in the room, and you think I really mean it, you think I'm conceited. I mean, it could be true. One of us has to be the nicest, I suppose. (laughs) I doubt it's me. Um, (laughs) If I came to the room and I said, I am the most moral person in the whole world. If I came to you and I say, I'm the most moral person there has ever been and could ever be, indeed, I am perfect and without sin. Who among you can accuse me of sin, says Jesus? Well, you think I'm barking. Unless it's actually true, of course. But is Jesus a lunatic? Again, it seems out of character with all of the other data we have about him. His wisdom, his moral teaching... Is it plausible to characterise the person who gave us such teaching, such wisdom, such moral guidance as a loony? Jesus says, Peter Kreef, I won't read the whole thing here, but he points out that he has in abundance precisely those qualities that liars and lunatics most conspicuously lack. That is, wisdom, love and creativity. What does Richard Dawkins make of this argument? Journalist Fanny Kiefer asked him, when you read the works of, say, C.S. Lewis, a Christian communicator with a a fertile mind, a great intellect, it was an Oxford don, why do you think someone who's a scholar like that is grabbed by faith? Dawkins says, well, you could pick a much better target than C.S. Lewis. He was, after all, a professor of English. And no doubt a very good one. When you read some of his arguments, they're just pathetic. I mean, things like, well, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, so either Jesus was mad or bad, or he really was the Son of God. It did not seem to occur to him that Jesus could simply be mistaken. Sincerely and honestly mistaken. I mean, what a pathetic argument. Jesus could simply be mistaken, sincerely and honestly mistaken. You know, sometimes I'm sincerely and honestly mistaken about why I left the house keys. People do make mistakes. But being sincerely and honestly mistaken about being God? (laughs) Nicky Gumbel, um, the, uh, the guy behind the Alpha course, in his book, His God of Delusion, says the irony of the God delusion, Dawkins' book, is that Dawkins says that all Christians are deluded because they believe there is a God. But Jesus was not deluded, even though he thought he was God. He was just sincerely and honestly mistaken about that. As Mike King puts it, anyone honestly mistaken in such a way would inevitably be considered insane. But why should Dawkins et al. not be content 
to simply dismiss Jesus as mad or bad. Quite clearly, it's because even a rudimentary flick through Jesus' life demonstrates both of these possibilities to be untenable. 